Hey folks, we have some exciting news to tell y'all about. The Bad Rolling Project has partnered with Expedition 44 and Rival Nations to start the one-of-a-kind No Key But Christ Network. This network will consist of content creators with the focus of Jesus is King and no other. For more information, visit nokeymutchristnetwork.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey folks, today Scott Horton is back on the show. You will remember we had Scott on for episode 23, and the goal for that show was to put the atrocities of American foreign policy in the faces of Christians, specifically Yemen. Today we're going to get an update from Scott on what is going on in Yemen, and also talk about other parts of the world where the U.S. government is sticking their nose. Let's go. Right. We'd rather serve God than serve right. Caesar, you know what I mean? Right. I'm just trying to live Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me back on the show. Really appreciate it. Yes, sir. I'm I'm thankful that you uh, make time for us to come on and, and speak with us because this this topic for me personally, from listening to your show, um, has become kind of something that I'm kind of I, my heart's grown towards because we're not hearing about it on corporate media from the, the likes of Fox News and CNN. You know, we're hearing a lot about Joe Rogan and COVID and they'll throw in some Russian Ukraine stuff in the mix too here and there, but they'd never talk about Yemen. And, and that's really bothersome to me because what's going on over there is not ended. And we talked about, or Biden talked about ending this at one point. And that's where I kind of want to start with you today is because he, it doesn't look like he's ended anything and it may be trying to uh, tick it up a little bit. That's right. So back when uh by, I think last time I talked to you, it was prior to Biden being elected, but we published a show after his inauguration. And at the time, he there was a, there, he had spoke about ending this war and, or ending the support for the Saudis in Yemen, and it doesn't look like that's happening. And, and it looks like it's he's continued it to this point. Is that true? Absolutely right. And in fact, I mean, at the time, it was, I believe, clear that he had ordered an end to, one, resupply that means any new planes but also bombs especially right new tires for their jets all these important things all maintenance meaning the people who do all the care and feeding of the saudi air force are all american and british contractors servicing the f-15s and the typhoon jets there you know the saudi princelings don't do any of their own any of that maintenance then you have the intelligence, meaning picking the targets, helping to run the war and deciding who to bomb and all these things is American intelligence officers, military and civilian, as well as contractors. And then the logistics in terms of like running the air traffic control and doing, you know, making sure the bombs are, you know, attached to the planes at the right time, but not sooner or too late or, you know, all these kinds of things is all run by our guys. And for the first few years, oh, I shouldn't stop too early in my description here. For the first few years, anyway, the Americans were flying our Boeing mid-air refueling jets until 
Boeing just sold enough of those to the Saudis and the UAE that they can do it themselves without us. At least they claim that it's not Americans. It may very well be American contractor, former Air Force pilots flying those things for all I know. I wouldn't doubt that. In fact, that's my presumption, but I don't know. But uh, they claim to not be directly responsible for the midair refueling anymore. But that's what makes it possible for the UAE, especially to reach the furthest targets and to loiter around looking for things to drop bombs on, which at that point you're killing civilians because you don't know what the hell you're hitting, you know, when you're just looking from the air like that. So that's a big part of it. And then, of course, U.S. naval support for the blockade, which is, you know, the Saudis don't have much of a navy, but the U.S., of course, rules the seven seas. And so when we say that there's a blockade on, and you can see the effect of this when the uh, Americans announced, oh, we seized a boat full of guns, and we accuse it of being Iranian guns on their way to the Houthis, which they never have any proof of. We can maybe go back over that a little bit later, Iran's role and stuff. But you see that, wait, who seized the guns again? Is the U.S. Navy did, because it's the U.S. Navy that's enforcing that blockade there. So this is all huge. And Biden, I believe that he did order it to end. I don't know. I don't think we have like insider reporting that says how that became undone, that what happened there. I mean, at the time, they confirmed Admiral Kirby at the Pentagon confirmed. That's right. Those are the president's orders, and we're implementing them now. And then about two months later, three months later, the beginning of May, he goes, oh, yeah, well, of course, maintenance for the Saudi Air Force continues because or else how are their planes going to fly? I mean, you can't have an Air Force without maintenance. And then so that was it. And then so all bets are on again, I guess you could say. All bets are off when it comes to ending the thing. And so now here we are a year later. The war continues to rage. It goes back and forth in terms of who's making what progress on the ground and all this stuff. People continue to die by the tens or hundreds of thousands. Uh, nobody's really keeping a careful count. We won't really know till later the outright civilian casualties. We'll talk about the specifics for all the humanitarian crisis and all that later, but there definitely is one. The civilians are suffering the most in this war, not anybody's armed force. And so, yeah, now here we are at the beginning of 22, a year later, right halfway through February. So we're, you know, a year and a week since Biden announced he was ending the war and it's still on and there's no end in sight. Yeah. I wanted to get into the humanitarian side of it too. And there's a couple other things. I was listening to your uh, episode with, uh, I think her name is Shireen Aladimi. And I apologize if I did not get her, if I didn't pronounce her name right. Anybody listening to the show knows I have a hard time pronouncing names sometimes, but I, I think I got that right. Yeah, yeah, no problem. That's right. All right, cool. But she she said some things in that show that, you know, and I, I think I'm sure I've heard you talk about it, but she, she pointed out a couple of things that I thought was pretty interesting too, because, and you've mentioned this before too, that Yemen is so far away from us that people don't even know where Yemen is on the map. They couldn't find Yemen. So, and it's not in our face. And she said something, you know, where like when, when we went to Iraq, when the United States government went to Iraq, there were American soldiers coming back in body bags or coming back with PTSD. That's not happening with this, with this, with the, with Yemen. There's no American soldiers over there fighting on the ground. So they're not coming back in body bags from this. So it's not as, it's not, is that why it's not being reported? Cause it seems to me that listening to you guys talk that the pre, the, the even Trump, Obama, and now Biden, they can use this as an excuse to say, well, we're not really involved because none of our soldiers are dying. 
And then you listen, and then if they keep this going, it's almost like every American president or the, the Saudis have them wrapped around their finger and they pretty much are directed by the Saudis because if they, it's like if they try to end this and they're going to be hurting their best friend's feelings. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? It's just so strange to me that they keep this going and there does, there does not seem to be a reason for it. It has to be money. I mean, at some point you would think because all the money that they're, they're, they're making off of the arms sales too. The Saudis, you would think that that would play a role in it, correct? Sure. I mean, I'm just really confused on why we're still doing this. It does not make any sense to me whatsoever. I, never, I mean, the beginning never made any sense to me, and now we're continuing. I just, I'm, I'm really confused on it. And I think that's what a lot of people, when they look at this, they don't, what are we doing? Yeah. All right. Well, so a few things there. I mean, on the last question first, and we'll talk in depth about this in a minute about, you know, what the reasons are, but it's, you have to let go of the idea that there's going to be a good enough reason to satisfy you that, okay, you agree we should do this. There isn't a reason like that, my friend. There are plenty of reasons like money and arms sales and the petrodollar and American influence and Saudi influence and cold wars with Iran and all of these different things that are at play. None of these are good enough reasons to do what we're doing. You're not going to be satisfied that like, oh, okay, that's reasonable because it's not reasonable. It's completely crazy. But I mean, the reasons do exist. They're just not good ones. So, and they mostly are, I think, yes, about arms sales and petrodollars, keeping the Saudis happy so that the Saudis don't turn away from us and go try to depend on anybody else which not that they really have anybody else to choose from. They could buy some weapons from the Chinese or something. But the Chinese don't have an arms industry like America has an arms industry. And America's already the dominant player in the Middle East and China's not coming. They don't want to spend the money. They got, as Donald Trump said, why are we securing China's oil? All this oil, we don't even buy Middle Eastern oil. All this oil is going to China. And why are we the ones securing it? And the answer is because the Chinese are like, well, Uncle Sucker, if you want to pay for all our security on the high seas, feel free to do so if it makes you feel better about yourselves. And so America has this policy of dominating the Middle East. So the Saudis are, you know, a major component of America's, as they would call it, security structure, some new speak crap for, you know, our political and military hegemony in the region. I mean, that's the deal. And, and then importantly, I want to say too that about the casualties. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head whether we've had any Americans actually killed in these things. But it is true that from time to time, they do send special operations forces in there to hit Al-Qaeda targets. And at this point, that's very ironic because America's backing Al-Qaeda and their allies in the war now. Now, when we start, if you think about the drone wars, Obama's notorious drone wars, in Yemen, that was against AQAP. And you would have special operations guys on the ground, typically, I guess, SEALs or Delta guys or, or maybe Army Rangers or whatever, would go in and do special operations or, or maybe uh, Green Berets, go in and do essentially hits on one house full of people or a village or you know this kind of thing real quick, in and out kind of a deal, along with drone strikes. And even though Obama switched sides in the war in 2015, that does continue to a very limited degree from time to time. So I don't want to say that there's like no boots on the ground ever, 
but there's not a major occupation. There's not an American army base there. We are not sending our infantry out patrolling around like in Baghdad and all these things, which is what you're really comparing it to, right? We don't have an Iraq War II style occupation and this level, and therefore the level of attention that came with that, which if you remember, in fact, after the first couple of months, when it became clear that this isn't fun anymore, people turned away and quit paying attention to Iraq even then. Even by the end of 2003, people went back to their sitcoms. So, and that was, and the, the war raged on for years and years after that. It can be very hard to keep people engaged. But so look, going back to another point that you made here about where people don't even know where in the world this is. As someone I know who's very educated told me, our friend Dave Smith, you mentioned Joe Rogan too, about how they talk about the distraction of Joe Rogan. But the greatness of Joe Rogan is then he interviewed Dave Smith right after all this big controversy. And Dave Smith goes on there and tells him all about Yemen. Well, a friend of me said, a friend of mine uh, said, you know, Dave made a big mistake on there. He said Yemen was the poorest country in the Middle East, but it's in Africa. And I said, no, dummy, it is not in Africa. It's the poorest country in the Middle East. It's right across the Red Sea from Somalia and the Horn of Africa there, but it's the southwestern tip of the Arabian Peninsula is where Yemen is. And the person I'm referring to, this friend of mine, is an educated person and who's interested in Middle East politics and everything. And it was sort of just a brain fart, probably. But it just goes to show, too, that people are very unfamiliar because, look, we don't have any real interest there, right? Since when we had a problem with Yemen our whole lives, right? Which just hasn't been our thing. That's true that our government has backed the government there, but not in a way that has brought it to our attention until Obama started bombing him in 09. In fact, if you remember back, uh, W. Bush bombed them a little bit, including killed an American citizen who, eh, he was kind of palling around with some Al-Qaeda guys and had a bomb dropped on the car that they were all in together. And so he wasn't the target at the time. So I'm not saying that's just fine, but I don't, I don't know that they, I'd have to go back, but I don't think they even knew that there was an American in the car. They knew who they were targeting, and then it happened that this American was with them, and so, eh, those might be the breaks. But then Bush pretty much outsourced the terror war to the government of Yemen after that, and, you know, had bigger fish to fry. And, of course, the dictator of Yemen was playing a double game and supposedly fighting al-Qaeda while also backing them against his other enemies, the Houthis in the north of the country, the Shiite uh, Houthi faction in the north, uh, kind of the whole time. And that kind of stayed on the back burner. Then Obama comes in and Obama says, look, W. Bush going after Baathists and Iranians and all this stuff is crazy. I want to focus on killing Al-Qaeda guys, especially in Pakistan and in Yemen. And so uh, CIA and Air Force, I want you guys to work together to fly some drones and drop bombs on the heads of these Al-Qaeda guys. Now, we know now, we knew then it was a very low number. We know now from John Kiriakou, there were 29, he says, and I believe him, 29 named, identified Al-Qaeda guys hiding out in Pakistan that the Americans wanted to go after at that time. And they killed thousands of people in those drone strikes. And then they helped the Pakistani government wage this massive war against the Pakistani Taliban as payback for letting us bomb these two dozen guys um, and in a war that killed tens of thousands and ended up leading to the rise of ISIS in Afghanistan, which we all know has been a problem since and did that suicide bombing as America was leaving. 
last October and the rest. So that's the Pakistani side of that notorious Obama drone war against Al-Qaeda. In Yemen, Al-Qaeda, you'll remember, were the guys that had bombed the USS Cole in the year 2000. And they had actually helped to coordinate the September 11th attack. It was one of the Flight 77 hijackers. His father-in-law ran what they called the switchboard house, where they took all the phone calls uh, and passed messages back and forth between Europe and America on one side and Afghanistan and Egypt and wherever on the other side in order to coordinate al-Qaeda activity, including September 11th there. And then since that drone war started, but after it started, they tried to bomb the plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009 with the underpants bombing. And then they did the Charlie Hebdo attack. Well, first there was two printer cartridge plots where they had uh, bombs in shipments that were disguised as printer cartridges um, that luckily both were foiled and failed one way or the other. I forget if they were just discovered or if they were kind of dud bombs that weren't made well or whatever it was. Um, and then they did the Charlie Hebdo attack where they blew up, you know, killed all the uh, machine gunned all the people at the uh, comic book in in Paris, France. And there were a couple other attacks in France, the Eagles of Death Metal concert. And um, uh, I'm sorry, one other massacre. I forget if it was in Brussels or some other place um, that these guys took at least partial responsibility for. So when, you know, sometimes you hear some propaganda like about Al-Shabaab in Somalia and they go, oh, these guys are Al-Qaeda linked. And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're a local indigenous force doing their thing, but they're not, you know, I mean, you know, linked all day, you know. But when we talk about AQAP, yeah, those guys are some pretty dangerous anti-American terrorists who are at least partially responsible for September 11th. Hey, folks, Craig here again. As you know, this project is completely self-funded by me and all profits go straight to charities here in Memphis. If you have a blog, a podcast or a product that you would like to advertise on the Bad Roman podcast, the first 15 folks to sign up for four ad spots with us will get a fifth spot for free. Visit thebadroman.com slash ads. I'm so happy how this project has grown, and thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the conversation. Can I ask you something real quick? Because you mentioned that, like the rise of ISIS, and where. And I was thinking about this before we we started recording. I, when I was listening to you and uh, Shireen's talk about, she was talking about the Houthis, and she said that it's what's going on over there has created more Houthis, or, or they're, they're, they have more support than they did prior to what prior to what happened with prior to the beginning. And it reminded me of stuff we talk about when, when Ron Paul came out and said that the reason these these people are pissed off at us, the reason we have all these terrorist organizations, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but is because we're bombing them and they're fighting back the only way they know how at this point. And then, and, and when she, she mentioned that to you in that show, I was like, maybe that's what's going on. Cause all this support now, the Houthis we know are not credible individuals, correct? But now they, but now they got more support. Right. Well, listen, you're totally right. You're totally right. In a way, you're fast forwarding in this story, but you, you're giving me. I apologize. <laughs> actually, though, you, you're making me want to rewind further. Okay, but I'm going to do this fast. So bear with me. Okay. Okay. Let's go back to Jimmy Carter. Okay. Jimmy Carter has a problem. Him and his guys are anti-Soviet hawks. People think of Jimmy Carter as a wimp, but his national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, was a hardcore Polish Cold Warrior guy, wanted to really stick it to the Russians. Problem was, the American people had what's called a Vietnam syndrome, which meant they didn't want to fight no more Vietnams after that absolute disaster of a quagmire of a failure of a war that we lost after all of that. And so they didn't want to contain the Soviet Union anymore. 
Well, Zbigniew Brzezinski and some of the others decided, hey, you know what we could do? Instead of containing them, let's bait them into unsustainable overexpansion. The Soviet empire is already overextended as it is. Now, we don't want to see them invade West Germany, but how about we bait them into invading Afghanistan? We'll give them their own Vietnam. Ironic, ironic, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Wouldn't that be funny if we could bait them into making the same stupid mistake that we just made that left us in this position where we don't have any other choice because we can't contain them anymore because people hated that war so damn much. So let's see if we can inflict one of these on them. And that was why they started supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to bait the Russians, the Soviet Union, into invading. I don't know if that really worked or not, but the Soviets did invade that winter. And, you know, they had their own reasons for invading anyway. So the point remains, that was why the aid to the Mujahideen began before the Soviet invasion even happened, okay? Then once the Soviet invasion happened, as hopefully everyone in your audience knows, but maybe not, the Jimmy Carter administration and then later the Reagan administration, they supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet occupation. Um, that was the side of the war that they were on with the Pashtun insurgents, essentially. But they also supported what was called the Arab-Afghan Army or the International Islamic Brigades. And these people were Arabs and other Muslims from all around the world, especially the Arab world, who came to Afghanistan to join the holy war to fight against the Soviet Union. These men became not just the core of what we call al-Qaeda today or al-Qaeda of 20 years ago or 25 years ago, bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri and their group, not just them, but quite seriously. And you see this as a theme in my book. It just comes up. Not that I plan that this is my theme. It just comes up over and over and over again. That if you look at Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, or if you look at al-Qaeda as it existed, hiding out in Afghanistan, those Saudis and Egyptians there, or if you look at al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, if you look at Arar al-Sham in Syria, if you look at the uh, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group in Algeria and Libya, all of these groups that have been part of the story of our war on terrorism the last 20 years all have their seeds in the groups that went to Afghanistan to fight with Ronald Reagan and the CIA's support against the Soviet communists in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Then they came and they spread to the wind and created all of this mess, okay? America also, during that time, supported Saddam Hussein against Iran because the Iranians had overthrown the American sock puppet government there and had threatened American interests. And Saddam Hussein had just come to power and he had his own problem with the Iranians. So the Americans supported Saddam Hussein against them for eight years. Then... In a dispute over war debts to Kuwait and to Saudi Arabia, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait famously in 1990, and America launched Iraq War I to drive them back out again. Operation Desert Storm, the Persian Gulf War, they call it, um, in January and February 1991. But then in the aftermath of the war, Bush Sr. encouraged the Shiite uprising. Have you ever seen the movie Three Kings with Marky Mark and Ice Cube and George Clooney? Yes. So they're soldiers, and the setting of that war is it's the aftermath of Iraq War I, and they're in southern Iraq, and now they're on a mission to steal some gold, right? But the setting is there's a Shiite uprising going on in the background. 
trying to overthrow Saddam, but Saddam's forces are crushing that uprising. Remember that? So that all happened. That was the aftermath of that war. And in real life, Bush Sr. had encouraged that uprising, but then betrayed it because he realized the Iranian revolutionary Shiites were coming across the border to lead the revolution. He was about to give Baghdad to Tehran. And he had just spent, as part of the Bush administration, they'd just spent a decade backing Saddam Hussein to contain the Iranian revolution. Now they were importing the thing into Iraq. And so they said, oops, and they choked and they stopped and they betrayed the uprising they had encouraged and they let Saddam Hussein massacre 100,000 of them. But then history always began this morning. (laughs) Well, gee, Saddam Hussein is a really bad guy who killed all these people. So now, even though he worked for us for eight years and we're the ones who set those people up to be massacred and betray them in that way, now we're Superman, Christopher Reeves, Boy Scout Superman come and it's our job to protect these Shiites now and keep our bases in Saudi Arabia that we built for the Iraq War One, and keep them so that we can wage these no-fly zones and this new containment policy against Iraq and Iran at the same time as well. And as Ron Paul pointed out uh, so famously in that debate with Rudy Giuliani and the other Republicans in May of 2007, it was bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia that took all those Arab Mujahideen fighters who were the leftover kind of jobless mercenaries after Afghanistan, this is what turned them against us, that we were occupying the holy land of the Arabian Peninsula, not just their home country. I mean, imagine how you'd react if there was an Arab occupying military base in your county. But now also imagine that Jesus had been born in your county and founded the Christian religion there too. You might take that especially seriously, right? Um <laughs> I'm a Texan, so you think about how we feel about the Alamo. But like, what if that was the birthplace of our religion, not just our civic religion that we all love Texas and the eyes of Texas are upon you and all this stuff. But that was where Jesus and Mary and all of that had gone down, was down in San Antonio. You think we might fight like hell for that? Uh, hold a grudge, even if Governor Abbott had invited the Saudis to come and build their military base in San Antonio, you think we'd stand for that? Well, that was kind of their attitude. No, they won't stand for that. And these, again, were Carter and Reagan's guys. And now Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton turned them against us. And they attacked us all through the 1990s. One, as revenge, especially for this policy, also backing Israel against the Palestinians and the Lebanese, supporting all these dictators in the region and all of these other things. But the strategy was to hit us and bog us down, trick us into making the same mistake that we had tricked the Soviets into making to give us our own Vietnam again, to get us to invade Afghanistan. So uh, the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit, Michael Scheuer, said that when W. Bush went to Afghanistan, that was Osama's dream come true. That's all he ever wanted was to get us bogged down in that mess, to break our empire the long way and the hard way. Uh, the, The people there well, let God sort them out. If they're faithful Muslims, they'll all go to heaven anyway, right? So who cares about them? This is the means to the end to break the power of the American empire. And then Michael Scheuer said, well, if that's all bin Laden ever wanted, then going to Iraq and overthrowing the quote unquote socialist infidel Saddam Hussein, as Osama bin Laden called him, well, that was just his dream come true. This was, as as Scheuer put it, his hope for but unexpected gift 
to Osama bin Laden. They're going to take the jihad and you're going to spread it a thousand miles to the west on the other, you know, the western side of Iran from where they'd been hiding out in Afghanistan on Afghanistan's eastern border. Now you move the whole war to the Ambar province and the Nineveh province and into, you know, right bordering on Syria and into the Levant and create this massive sectarian war that radicalizes the politics and the religion of everybody in the region all the way around in reaction to America's chaotic intervention there. And then, you know, and I hope people are keeping up with this, but I think people know a lot of history anyway in bits and pieces that what we know from W. Bush's war in Iraq War II was that we had, first of all, majorly a Sunni-based insurgency because they were the ones losing out because W. Bush was taking that Shiite uprising that Bush Sr. had betrayed in 91. Bush Jr. took them all the way to Baghdad in 2003. Well, so what did that mean? That meant the Sunnis reacted against that in this massive violent insurgency. They were the minority, former ruling caste, now being kicked out of power. And so then Bush, what he did was he pushed them right in the arms of Al-Qaeda, who were, guess what, here to help. And so you have a bunch of radicals from all around the region replicate exactly the same deal as in Afghanistan again, only now we're the Soviets in, you know, I mean, Afghanistan in the 80s. Afghanistan was too remote at this point. It was easier to get to Iraq um, to fight us there. So you had all these foreign fighters from Saudi Arabia and Libya and Syria and uh, Jordan and wherever coming to Iraq to fight under Zarqawi. They were the suicide bomber brigades. They were the head choppers. They were the craziest, the bin Ladenite, you know, berserker, you know, worst part of the Sunni base insurgency that targeted Shiite civilians, you know, pilgrims praying at their mosques and targeted Americans, uh, you know, severely in that war. And so then, of course, guess what happened? You already know that after Rock War II ended, they all went back home again. And this same phenomenon happens where the, all these bin Ladenite jihadist types go back to where they're from to cause more trouble. And so they went back, of course, to Libya, to Syria, to Yemen, where guess what? In the case of Libya and Syria, Obama took their side. Hey folks, Craig here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page, and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in-depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. And we'll get back to Libya and Syria another day or whatever. But to get back to Yemen here, when Obama first comes into power, as I was saying, he ordered the CIA to go after al-Qaeda here. He said, enough of this screwing around with Iraq and the secular Baathists and the Iranians and stuff. I want to kill bin Laden's friends. That's the job. Well, the CIA's idea was, well, what we'll do is we'll drop Hellfire missiles on their heads and 500 pound bombs on their heads, and then they'll be dead and then they won't exist anymore and it'll be great. Well, of course, that's stupid and doesn't work because it's the same blowback problem again is people really don't like it when you drop gigantic explosives on their family members and 
tear their bodies apart. And you think about how sad you are when your auntie dies of old age. Now imagine somebody threw a bomb at her or, or flew a robot overhead from 15,000 miles away and killed her with that thing, tore her to pieces with shrapnel. Yeah, well, what happens is people join Al-Qaeda. Ain't no better recruitment pitch. So in other words, Obama's trying to kill these guys, but as he's killing them, he's just essentially watering the garden with their blood and growing more and more of their replacements. Stanley McChrystal, the, the general from Afghanistan, called it insurgent math. For every two you kill, you get 10 more, he said. Or for every one you kill, you get 10 more. For every two, you get 20, he said. So that was going on in the South. Now, here's where we get into the Yemen narrative here. So everybody get on the southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula with me now. Obama and the CIA are bombing al-Qaeda, mostly in the south of the country. Well, they're bribing the dictator, Saleh, in the capital city in the middle of the country. All of this is essentially taking place in the west. The east is barren wasteland out there, desert land. So this is almost all taking place in the, the western part of the country, okay? Not that al-Qaeda dominates in the east, but just that's where they are where he's bombing them with the CIA, okay? Then you have in the center of the country is the capital city, Sana'a, where the dictator's a guy named Abdullah Saleh, and America supported him since H.W. Bush, through Bill Clinton and W. Bush now, and into um, Obama. And Obama's bribing Abdullah Saleh with money and weapons to let him kill al-Qaeda guys in the South. Well, Abdullah Saleh's playing a double game. He's back in al-Qaeda and their Muslim Brotherhood allies, because he's using them as auxiliaries with his military to attack his enemies, the Houthis, this group of Zaydi Shiites who live up in the north of Yemen, up near the Saudi border there. It's just like Obama's folly in the south. Every time he attacks them, they win and beat him back. And his forces lose and they become more and more powerful as they repel his attacks. And it turns out this guy's playing double and triple games because he's actually even helping finance his Houthi enemies that he's attacking and arming them so that they will wear out his own military and his Al-Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood allies that he has hired to help his military fight them. These guys, are that's how they play politics in Yemen. They wear curved daggers right on their belt, and it's more than symbolic, I think, you know? Um, so anyway, then... The Arab Spring breaks out in 2011. Peaceful revolutions succeed in Tunisia and in Egypt. So the whole region breaks out into day of rage protests and attempts to overthrow monarchies and el presidentes and dictators wherever they can. In a lot of places, it goes nowhere. In a lot of places, America and Saudi Arabia hijack the thing and wage their own counter-revolutions and such. Well, in the case in Yemen, everybody agreed all the factions descended on the town square there, the Pearl Roundabout, they called it, um, and demanded that Abdullah Saleh has to go. And their big protest movements last for weeks or months, I forget now. But then eventually, somebody tried to assassinate him. I think they the first time they shot an RPG at him, and the second time it was a planted bomb, or I might have that in the opposite order or something. But anyway, the first time I think he got away clean, and the second time he was wounded, but not killed but he had to leave the country and go to Saudi Arabia for medical treatment. And while he was gone, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State under Obama in his first term, she swooped in and worked with the Saudis and said, let's ease Saleh out and we'll replace him with the Vice President Hadi. Now, this wasn't really in the Constitution because they were forcing him out, but they were at least putting the Vice President in there. 
but the vice president is not up to this task whatsoever. So he comes in, he's terrible. The first thing they do is they hold a one-man election. I swear to God, you can find this. Even NPR News covered it. If you put it in Google Images right now, say Sala, S-A-L-E-H, put in Sala election 2012, and even NPR News will show you a picture of the ballot with one man on the ballot, one oval for you to put your X in or fill in um, to vote. And Hillary called this the invention of Yemeni democracy and all this. And everybody was supposed to be placated, but of course they weren't placated. And then this guy came in and he was terrible. I have in the book, I have the whole laundry list of things that he did. First of all, he stayed in office and didn't hold new elections. He was only supposed to be there for two years and then hold new elections to see if he could stay and never did that. And uh, this is out of order because this was actually the last straw was when he abolished the gasoline subsidy, which like doubled or tripled the price of gasoline overnight, which as we just saw in Kazakhstan can really cause a riot when you do that to people because um, it just shuts down businesses. You know, owners and workers are just completely pissed off. Everybody's pissed off when gasoline prices get jacked up that fast. And then he he had a strong federalism program that separated essentially like taking these large counties and like drawing state lines where making them like much harder divisions inside the country, which in effect isolated the Houthis in the North away from the Red Sea and their fishing and was going to like raise all new hurdles. They would need a whole new easement and a whole new bureaucracy to deal with to get to the sea and this kind of deal. So he's just, and he attacked them. Uh, he tried to follow in Saul's footsteps and attack the Houthis. And just like when Saleh attacked them, they kicked his ass. Part of the reason that was, was because when Hillary fired Saleh, he didn't go back to his farm and required uh, retired to a life of quiet study. He went away mad and he took about two thirds of the army with him. And then if everybody still is with me here. This former dictator took the army with him and he went up north and he allied with his former enemies, the Houthis, who he had attacked all those times. Because guess what? It turned out he was a Zaidi Shiite. He just wasn't a Houthi, which is a family and a tribal kind of leadership. Well, he was outside of the Houthi tribe, but he was still a Zaidi Shiite. And his family was still from up north up there. So he had plenty enough in common with them that now the Houthis and the Saleh government, their former enemies, now allied in a new team to then take on Hadi and throw him out. So by the end of 2014, the Houthis and the Saleh alliance marched down out of the north and they seized the capital city. Okay, now here's where it gets a little bit complicated. Uh, well, yeah, it already was, but here's where it gets a little bit worse complicated. It's now, as we're recording this, it's uh, just a little bit past halfway through February. It's February the 18th of 2022. So if we go back exactly seven years, America was allied with the Houthis for a very short time. It was our current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. He was then a four-star general, and he was the commander of Central Command. And he had worked out a deal with the Houthis. Hey, you guys like killing Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula? Well, we like watching you kill Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Here's some intelligence to use to target them with. And the Houthis said, actually, Al-Qaeda likes killing us, so we sure as hell like killing them. Thank you very much for the intelligence. Let's be friends and work together. 
And you can read all about this in Al Monitor and from the Wall Street Journal from January of 2015. Go back just seven years ago. And America cozies up to Houthis to give them intelligence to kill the guys who bombed the coal, to kill the guys who try to blow up the plane over Detroit. Now, I'm not a pro-war guy. I think having a war on terrorism is completely crazy and counterproductive. And as I explained, it was all Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, and George Bush and Bill Clinton who got us into this mess. And it was all W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden who just made it worse. So I'm not for any of this stuff. However, at least... That makes sense <laughs> on some level, okay? I'm not saying it's reasonable, but I am saying it's rational, okay? That we're back in the Houthis to kill Al-Qaeda, okay? But then it gets crazy because one month from now will be the seventh anniversary of when Barack Obama stabbed the Houthis in the back and switched sides in the war and took Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula's side against the Houthis to drive them out of power. And that's the war that's been fought to no successful progress whatsoever, no gains that can be claimed at all in seven years of merciless air war. And I'll, we'll talk about the, the specific humanitarian concerns in just a second. But back to one of your original points here about leading from behind, as the Barack Obama government called it when they waged the war in Libya. Just like waging the robot drone war so that we don't have any casualties coming home at Dover. Another way around that same loophole of responsibility is to say, hey, this is the Saudi-led coalition. Saudi and UAE and, gee, sometimes we admit, yes, Al-Qaeda are fighting against the Houthis. Us, yeah, we're kind of helping them a little bit with some maintenance and some support and some this and that. But see, you don't buy that. When you say it out loud, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Because what do we know? America's the world empire. Saudi Arabia's our client state. Those F-15s are made in North Texas and shipped over there. Those bombs are made in Kansas City or whatever the hell it is, right? This is America's war. And they are our clients doing this. Now, as you said, the incentives, quite correctly, the incentives are all screwed up where the empire is on its knees begging the client state to stay in their good graces. Well, why should that be? Shouldn't they be fighting our wars for us and then turning them off the day that we tell them to? Why are we carrying their weight for them? You know, um, and as you said, it's the money, it's the petrodollar and arms sales and all of this. And in fact, um, I was just interviewing Doug Bondo from Cato and antiwar.com uh, right before we went on here. And he pointed out, it's uh, uh, such an important point to make. There's this really great article in uh, the New York Times, I hate to say, but it's credible reporting from the horse's mouth here about Pete Navarro, who is Donald Trump's trade representative. And he had a problem, which was Trump had raised all these tariffs on China. And this was really hurting American manufacturing, at least in the short term, as they're trying to adjust to all the new pricing structures and what's available and what's not on the, on the market right now and all of this stuff. And so they wanted to make it up to manufacturing. As though manufacturing is one big company or something like that. It's just not. So Pete Navarro had this brilliant idea. What's something that the White House 
can do for industry other than, you know, cutting their taxes, which they've done anyway. And what directly can we do? They said, well, we can bolster the military industrial complex. We can boost Pentagon spending, and that will pay off some of the major industries. And then he made explicitly an alliance with his new good buddies at the leadership of Raytheon, the guys that make the bombs and the missiles. And they said, listen, Raytheon, we'll give you all this money if you help smooth things over with heavy industry in America, which I think that part of it probably never played out that well. Because, you know, if you're into importing kitchen-sized stoves and ovens from China, what do you care if Raytheon gets an extra welfare check from the Pentagon? That doesn't help you. You know what I mean? So the whole thing is just stupid anyway. Um, You know, the way that they set it up just makes no sense. But that was part of their reasoning was simply money. And, you know, I quote him in the book, Donald Trump ludicrously claimed that, well, the Saudis are spending $450 billion on American weapons. Yeah, over the next couple of hundred years, they are. I mean, give me a break. This is completely crazy. They spend like $3 billion a year. And that's enough to kill a lot of people. But you're telling me the economy of the United States of America is somehow dependent on that? Donald Trump claimed that a million American jobs were dependent on Saudi arms sales. This is just completely ridiculous, make-believe numbers. And, you know, William Hartung, who's a real expert on this, broke it down, said it's more like 30,000, and probably half of those are in Saudi Arabia, not here. And those are all people who are brilliant engineers who ought to be doing something else, something productive with their time, like helping to distribute goods and services to people, something like that, you know? Um, Instead, it's all wasted. And just as you said, it's all just corrupt. It's all essentially just welfare for big business at the expense of the lives of these, you know, you would think we all consider priceless human lives. And... um, and so then the thing just goes, I mean, we're talking about this seven years into this war. And now to get more specific on the humanitarian thing here, because it's the Saudi-led coalition and we're leading from behind, that does mean that the Saudis take the lead in bombing whatever the hell they want, or at least it makes it where the Americans feel like they have extra license to commit war crimes and get away with it because they can hide behind the Saudis. Because all along in this war, they have bombed apartment buildings, commercial buildings, marketplaces, bombed the fishermen's boats, bombed the horses in their stables, bombed the farms and the grain silos. You know, there's this great study by Martha Mundy from the London School of Economics that she did for Tufts University about Saudi's uh, economic war against the people of Yemen. And it's, you know, when we say economic war, we're not talking about like bombing their buildings full of financial people. We're talking about bombing their farms, talking about bombing the roads, bombing their trucks, bombing their gasoline stations, bombing their marketplaces. They bombed the grain silos. She she talked about the farms. They bombed the flocks of sheep in the field. F-16 flies over, bombs your flock of sheep. You know, uh, we had, in Iraq War II, there were a couple of cases where guys would machine gun sheep as they were driving by kind of for fun. I don't think I ever heard of Americans bombing them with their fighter jets just for fun, the way that the Saudis have done here. Um, And then bombing their grain silos, bombing their irrigation ditches, 
and and then bombing their hospitals had a massive cholera outbreak because the Americans slash Saudis bombed the water, they bombed the electricity, they bombed the sewage, they bomb you know all of the infrastructure. Then when the cholera outbreak comes, they bomb the cholera hospitals. Now, you can't make this stuff up, man. Everybody can double check every word I say here, no problem. You know it doesn't get much publicity, but it's there. You find every bit of it. You know, they had a massive cholera outbreak, the worst one since they started recording this thing since World War II. And that includes the one that H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton had inflicted on the Iraqis through their sanctions back in the early 90s. So um, you had, you know, at times it's come and gone, but there were at times that you had hundreds of thousands of people infected with cholera. And then that means that the babies die, the toddlers and the babies die of dehydration from the vomiting and the diarrhea. And this is all just completely unreasonable, completely unnecessary. You know, I want to say no one in Yemen ever attacked us, but that's not right. It's our allies in Yemen that ever attacked us, not the people we're waging war against. And sure as hell, who are not, as you stipulated, the Houthis ain't heroes. Nobody's saying they're heroes. It's just they never did a damn thing to us. And and these civilians, if anybody's a, a white hat, it's the civilians who don't have government jobs, who aren't armed fighters, who aren't participating in any of this. And by the way, I'm not so sure defending your country makes you guilty of anything anyway. But when we're talking about people who aren't fighters of any description, then, I mean, what are we doing here? This is in violation of every Geneva Convention, the, of the international law that America has foisted on the rest of the world for the last 75 years, that this is going to be the way it is because we say so. We'll attack you. You go violating the Geneva Conventions. We'll hold you, uh, we'll, we'll set up an international criminal court and lock you up if you do this stuff, unless it's us. And let me finish this particular part of the story. And in fact, I'll, I'll stop after this. Um, but let me just back this up by saying you can read in Reuters and in the New York Times that during Obama and during Trump, that lawyers in the State Department wrote memos to the boss saying, we are afraid we could go to prison for what we're doing. We can't do this. And then those memos were put in desk drawers. So, of course, it's a complete ridiculous joke that the Department of Justice is going to prosecute a bunch of American war criminals. That's not their job. Hell, it doesn't even come up, right? But it does go to show that at the highest levels of the U.S. government, the people who are the specialists in not just international law, like, oh, the baby blue, United Nations, New World Order, world government against us. No, no, no. The, the world law that America has foisted on the rest of the planet Earth at gunpoint. The world law that America wrote and that America ratified. America's own War Crimes Act that makes it a federal felony to violate the Geneva Conventions and to commit these acts. And you have the highest level lawyers in the State Department writing it down. Uh, boss, we could go to the penitentiary because this is against the law. Never mind that it's treason, but it's genocide and that's also bad. Yeah, tell your uh, tell your average Obama supporter, Trump supporter, or even now but Biden supporter that their their favorite president is a war criminal. And they'll look at you on the side of their eye like you're crazy, you know, but it's true. Well, you know what? 
That's a great point. But let me say this. If you're a Trump guy, you just heard me condemn Obama and Biden, right. too. It's just true. Quit crying. Right. And if you're an Obama guy, you just heard me condemn Trump. It's the same thing. You don't have to believe in these people. What are we, children? I just, in fact, in this interview, I condemned every president since Jimmy Carter by name over and over again for the things that they did that caused this crisis. Yeah. That's simple as that. You don't have to, what are you, married to these presidents? What'd they ever do for you? They're just presidents. They're not America. We're talking about Bill Clinton and W. Bush here. Yeah. These are the worst people who ever lived, certainly in North America. Yeah, absolutely. So screw them. Why, why are we bound? It's just like when people act like, well, Nikita Khrushchev gave Crimea to Ukraine back when he was the general secretary of the Communist Party and the supreme first cabinet secretary of the Soviet Politburo. Well, what the hell do I care about that? That means he's like Moses, you know, come down from the mountain. <laughs> he's just some commie commissar made some edict. Doesn't impress me one bit. Let's talk about the real context here. Bill Clinton, the butcher of Waco. Well, he also had a pretty lousy Middle East policy. Okay? George W. Bush, who never got a single thing right, and even all Republicans admit it now. You know, Mitt Romney and John McCain couldn't win the presidency back in W. Bush. Donald Trump won it denouncing him. That's the time of day it is now. Everybody knows better than this now. If I tell you that, that W. Bush had a counterproductive policy expanding NATO in Eastern Europe, you would think, you know what, that's possible. I don't know, <laughs> right? Like, did, did he make mistakes sometimes? Yeah, he, he made mistakes pretty often. Actually, now that I think about it, that could have been one of them. I don't know. At least he'd be open to the possibility, right? Bill Clinton, who you know, famously was this savage face-biting rapist, at least back when he was the attorney general of Arkansas, the guy who burnt the Branch Davidians, you know, sent the army to butcher the Branch Davidians. You want to blame the FBI, but it was the Delta Force took the lead in butchering those people. You know, this same guy who like, was famously impeached for lying because he was such a bad liar. Like, oh, you know what? I also disapprove with some of the things that he did with his military bases in Saudi Arabia. Does that hurt your feelings, really? I, I'm blaming America first now. I hate America because I hate Bill Clinton. Those, to me, are not synonyms. Bill Clinton, who was Jeffrey Epstein's best friend and constant traveling companion on the Lolita Express, that Bill Clinton, I don't think that you have to condemn America to condemn that man and the decisions he made. And I don't think anybody should have to have their emotions tied up with these leaders, even if you supported them. They still all did bad things. And, and in the case of Donald Trump, what he did in Afghanistan, even though he negotiated our, our, our exit from there, he also massively escalated the air war. Massively. I mean, they dropped thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of bombs for, you know, three and a half years of his four years. I mean, he, he didn't escalate till August of 17. And, but it was ongoing. There's bombings going on anyway. But he sent 10,000 more troops and massively escalated the air war, killed tens of thousands of innocent people he didn't have to kill in Afghanistan. Why? Just to shut the generals up so they'd leave him the hell alone for a little while? I mean, that's not a good enough. Right, same as Obama. Obama escalated the war in Afghanistan in 09 just so that John McCain would leave him the hell alone. 
right? When he had just beat John McCain by 10 points, he could have given a speech called, I just beat John McCain by 10 points. You can shut your mouth, old man. Nobody cares what you think. And instead he goes, okay, okay, fine. And sent 70,000 more troops to escalate a war he knew he'd already lost. Kill another few hundred thousand people. That's how they make these decisions, these guys. So no, I don't think that my government and my country are the same thing. I certainly don't believe these scumbag presidents that we've had in my lifetime represent the American people or our wishes or what we would have done or our morality that, you know, if you can get people to cheer for these things, but only by lying to them from morning to night in order to get them to be afraid and, and then endorse the idea that their government is only trying their best to protect them when it's just not true. And, and look, I'm a Texan. I'm from here. Okay, but like that doesn't mean that my government isn't the aggressor in the situation. That's just true. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I I, I tell this to to people all the time too because when I talk to, I said like, listen, I'm not anti-American. I'm anti your the government of America. There's a difference. You don't you can't you don't have to conflate the two. They're two separate things. And whenever I'm talking about talking against the atrocity of the United States government, I'm not speaking against you. You're not in office sending these people over sending these bombs over there to kill people. I mean. But you are complicit in putting them in office, though. You know, so this is why I want people to think about it. Right. I mean, and, but again, only based on deception, right? Right. But yeah, like on your point about the responsibility here, I mean, look at what happened with the Branch Davidians. Okay. They were Americans. But then what did Bill Clinton do? I mean, and look, he just came into power. It was really the FBI did all this, although he could have taken control of the situation. He did order the final assault. That's completely on him. But I mean, what happened, at least on his watch during that whole time by these feds, was they turned this little tiny plot of land on the outskirts of northeastern Waco in central Texas, which is where you, you know, stop to get fast food on the way to Dallas. It's just, you know, especially back then was a pretty small town. And they made that little piece of property into a foreign country. And they made those Branch Davidians into Iraqis that it's okay to kill. And so which side is the Americans in that one? The FBI or the Branch Davidians? The Department of Justice and the Combat Applications Group and the President of the United States or a minister and his flock living on a piece of property? You know, at the end of the day, the reality is they're all Americans, right? The question maybe more apt would be, well, whose side are you on? Who do you identify with here in this situation? The cops who mercilessly attacked these people without reason, the people who defended themselves, the innocents who, again, total non-combatants caught in the middle. Um, my sympathies lie with the civilians. And take a look at Iraq War II. They did the exact same thing to Saddam Hussein that they did to David Koresh. They said, look, he's crazy. So you can't negotiate with him. And he's got illegal weapons. And he's bad to his own people. So we have to go send the Delta Force in there to kill him, to save them all. And they play the exact same script in 1993 as they did in 2003. The same damn thing again. And people fall for it every freaking time, too. Simple as that. And so... You don't have to be pro-David Koresh or pro-Saddam Hussein to just say, David Koresh was not going to march on downtown Waco. And Saddam Hussein was not going to march on Tel Aviv. And Vladimir Putin is not going to march on Berlin. 
very unlikely the Chinese will attack Taiwan. <laughs> they might, but but very unlikely there. And if they do, it'll be because the Americans told the Taiwanese, go ahead and declare independence. Let's see what happens, dude, and see if we can get a fight started would be the most likely way that that would happen. Yeah. But otherwise, we just don't have to fight, man. This is the big secret. This is like the crazy radical reality that people never discuss that America has no enemies in the world at all. We could be just fine without a Pentagon at all, without a military at all. You know, Ron Paul said, we could defend this country with a couple of good submarines. And the reason for that is because nobody's coming. And a, marine, uh, a good submarine can sink any Navy that's on its way here with a conventional torpedo. And also it can nuke Moscow if, not, if Moscow nukes us first. Right. But other than that, we can just leave the world the hell alone. Now spin the globe with me in your head. Okay. There are no powers in the Americas. Just us. Right. Brazil will never have a blue water Navy and go around bossing people around. Okay. They're the second biggest economy after Canada and Mexico. We already know they're not doing anything. There are guys. Then you go to Europe. Everybody in Europe is our friend and including Russia. If you ask Putin, he goes, oh, our American partners, you know, we get along with them on and work with them on all kinds of issues. And then he'll list a bunch where we actually do work together on all kinds of issues. Um, and we certainly, this is a whole other show, but we certainly don't have to be treating Russia like an enemy as we are right now at all. Um, you go to Africa, there are no powers in Africa. Egypt is the closest thing and they're under our thumb and have been you know, friends of ours forever. And even if they weren't under our thumb, if we just treat them with decent respect as an independent nation, we'd be fine no matter who was in charge of Egypt. Nobody's gonna mess with us. They're not gonna pick a fight. They're not gonna close the Suez Canal to global trade and start a war that gets themselves blasted. It's just not gonna happen. There's no threat there. Um, and then you have India, a billion people, but almost all of them in desperate poverty with a crazy, you know, two-thirds commie, corrupt government and, and a horrible traditional caste system that keeps them poor and weak. They have a few nukes that they could use against Pakistan, but they have no outward foreign policy whatsoever, no attempt to build a navy and intimidate other nations in South Asia or anything like that, much less the United States of America, not for the next 200 years. Well, there's just no foreseeable circumstance where we have a problem with the subcontinent. Keep turning the dial. You get finally to China. Well, they're our second biggest trading partner. We've been friends with them for 50 years. Richard Nixon went over there to make friends with them 50 years ago to break them off from the Soviet Union. Yeah, you're still commie, but you're all right with us. And that was during Mao, quantifiably the worst human, most dangerous, most violent human being who ever lived in world history. And Nixon said, you know what? I'd rather be your friend than not. And then the good news is Mao died right after that. And Deng Xiaoping and the right wing of the Communist Party took over and have ruled China ever since then and have turned it essentially into more of a fascist dictatorship than a uh, communist one. It has, of course, a huge welfare state, but it also has pretty much market capitalism. It's a very politicized economy, but there are, you know, I don't know how many tens of thousands of legit, major, mostly to a great degree, independent uh, corporations doing business in China. And, you know, in the last 20 years, it's probably the best thing that happened to the most people in the shortest amount of time that you could ever imagine. And there's just no reason that we have to turn that into a naval confrontation. And again, 
Worst case scenario, China invades Taiwan. I mean, that would be bad for the people of Taiwan and be bad for the people of China. And I'm totally against that. And I hope they don't do that. But that doesn't mean that they're coming to Vietnam and Thailand and Japan and Korea next. And they have no interest in doing that. Taiwan is part of China. America, again, has recognized that for 50 years. And we say we don't want them reunified violently. You know, they're separate because of the Quirka history of the end of the Civil War in 49, where the nationalists got the island and the communists got the mainland, right? But we say we don't want to see a war there, not that we're promising to intervene in the case of one. We don't want to see a war there, but we do recognize that Taiwan is part of China. It has been since the 1600s. And so, um, again, worst case scenario, China invades Taiwan tomorrow. That doesn't mean they're going to Tokyo. That doesn't mean they're going to Sydney. It doesn't mean they're trying to become the dominant world unipolar power to replace America as the world empire. That just means that they're uh, decided to aggressively solve this outstanding issue of theirs that they have, which in their mind is an internal issue rather than an external one. So, and then we're out of countries, right? Australia, they're our friends. They're in the... Uh, much like we are there in the British Commonwealth, right? Uh, uh, Anglophone country with us. And then that's it. Or Japan, of, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to leave out Japan. Uh, Japan, their, you know, Shintoist cult of power that the Americans had helped to encourage and cultivate back 100 years ago is no longer dominant there. They have no desire to be an imperialist power. They have an aging population and all of these things. They're not on their rise of threatening anyone. And so then that's it. Keep spinning the globe. You got nothing but ocean, pal. You just did a world tour and we have no enemies. There's nobody to fight. Who, the Ayatollah in Iran? I'm sorry, I forgot him on the way to India because they have, you know, the GDP of North Florida or something like that. No, because that includes Disney World and all that. No, no, no. More like North Alabama. Um. And partially that's because of American economic war against them. If, if they were, you know, a free and independent nation in the world allowed to trade with everybody else, they would be moderately more wealthy. And then that would make them eh, a nuisance to the Iraqis who, you know, they share the Shiite religion and, and a lot of um, relations in power. But after all, the Iraqis are Arabs and the Iranians are Persians and they're different. Nobody wants to be bossed around by anybody from the other side of the line anywhere, this kind of thing. But do, by any stretch of the wildest imagination, do I or should anyone listening believe that Iran is coming for Israel? That they have a navy that they could even sail up the Red Sea before they found themselves at the bottom of it? Um, that they're aggressive threat to anyone in the region whatsoever. Iran hadn't attacked anybody in 200 years. You know, they had to make that movie, The 300, defending Christendom from the Persians because you have to go back to ancient times for when was the last time the Persians were coming to Southern Europe. Give me a break. Um, and so then that's it. We could be... We could just completely shed ourselves of this militarism, be a limited constitutional republic with a free market capitalist economy. We're securing the blessings of liberty for our own population, our highest political goals and priorities, and everything else is sort itself out. And who could look now at the last 20 years and say, yes, thank God we did that. That's really worked out great. 
And it doesn't matter that, you know, there's the, the new survey said that three quarters of America's freeway bridges need to be, you know, severely maintained or replaced. They were all built with 1950s technology in the 1950s. But no, we blew $10 trillion killing people so that we could put Iran's friends in power in Baghdad and Al-Qaeda's friends in power in Mosul. Yeah, it's been (laughs) awesome. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. I know it. So there's a couple of things. I'm going to let you get out of here because I know you got some other stuff to go. Uh, But I wanted to touch on real quick with the humanitarian side of Yemen. Um, The Shireen Al-Adimi, she mentioned something. She said every 75 seconds, there's a child dying from hunger in Yemen because of the blockade. I don't know about those numbers, but I don't necessarily doubt it. But I just don't know exactly. I think that comes from the Save the Children Foundation. Okay. I don't know the exact number of that, but I am telling you that it's true that they have a massive famine going on there. This country is the poorest country in the Middle East because you won't be surprised because of previous IMF gangsterization where they had convinced them, listen, Instead of growing sorghum and millet and all this other stuff that you're using, you know, sustenance crops to feed your population, you should plow all that under and plant cotton and coffee and sell that on the world market. You'll make all this money. Look at our charts. You'll make all this extra money and then you can spend that. You'll be eating Brazilian beef and Florida oranges in the global capitalist economy and everything will be great which I guess worked to a degree, although with government intervention, though, you never know how efficient the transfer was there in the first place. But once the Americans put you under blockade, now, yeah, you can't eat your cotton and coffee. And that blockade is due to, like, Trump on his way out designating the Houthis as a terrorist organization, and then Biden stopped that, but he's talking about doing it, he's going to do it again. Yeah, now they're talking about doing it again, only because, you know, allied insistence. But then that'll mean that it becomes a crime to send them humanitarian aid. It becomes, you know, that much more difficult for the aid organizations to send them wheat to eat. And and look, I mean, this isn't just, you know, propaganda. And I know you do get this a lot of Belgian babies on bayonets is the cliche, right? Where the in World War One, the war propaganda had it that the Germans were just butchering all of the men, women, and children of Belgium. And this is why we had to get in the war to stop the evil, vile Hun and all of this kind of thing. So you do hear that a lot. Saddam Hussein stealing the incubators from premature babies and leaving them on the cold floor to die was part of the propaganda that got us into the war in 1991. But this is not that. This is really real. And anybody can go to your favorite search engine and look at, uh, just search Yemeni children uh, I don't even think you need to add hungry or starving in there. Um, and you will just see hundreds of pictures of malnourished children, essentially toddlers on their deathbeds. It's complete devastation. I know I've seen the photos that you're talking about. It's complete devastation over there. It's, it's so sad. It breaks my heart to see this. And yeah. it's it's something, like I said, I wanted to get you back on the show to keep this conversation in front of Christians' faces. And, you know, the vast majority of the folks that listen to us are Christians. And they can use this as a resource to send to their Christian friends and family to, hey, this is what's going on in Yemen because these politicians that you're putting in power are causing this. And we need to stop doing this. We need to find a different path. And and like I said, I really appreciate you coming on and speaking with us again. And we'll have you on again sometime, I'm sure. You know, this is a year later since the last time I had you on. But. Well, you know, on the religious angle there, let me just say real quickly that— um you know, none of this is, oh, well, see, it's us versus them. It's the Christians versus the Muslims, or it's, you know, us and the Jews versus them, or, you know, this kind of thing. It's just, that's not how it is. I mean, 
you look at all the different factions here and all the different sides, and as America changes sides back and forth over and over again throughout these wars, we put ourselves on the side of the most extreme bin Ladenite terrorists at times when it suits our purpose. And mostly when they fight for Iran, it's because they're stupid and that's the consequences that they didn't mean to happen. But very often when they fight on the side of Al-Qaeda, they know exactly what they're doing. They're trying to make up for those mistakes and get back at the Iranians by backing these radical Sunni jihadists against them and this kind of thing. And so, you know, this kind of very oversimplified mythology of the early W. Bush years that, you know, it's like white Christendom is going on this kind of crusade somehow against to beat back the rising Muslim caliphate or whatever. It's just not right. None of that is right. You know, frankly, your ministers lied to you. They are damned yeah. fools themselves. And it, was, it had nothing to do with what's going on here. You know, Saddam Hussein was an atheist. He worshipped himself, period. Um, he was terrified of Osama bin Laden. That whole thing about radical Islam. I mean, think about it, just the last few years. Whatever happened to radical Islamic extremism? I thought we were at war against Islam forever because they were going to erase our civilization from the earth if we didn't stop them. And now so we just completely forgot about that because now the enemy's Russia and China instead. And the reality is that was never true. And, and it's also the true. What is true is that Al-Qaeda is still out there and the American policies that drive them to attack us still exist in great measure. We still have bases in Saudi. Trump you know, put more back there. So bases all over the Arabian Peninsula, which is this absolutely genocidal war in Yemen, still supporting the Israelis against the hapless, poor, uh, helpless, occupied Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem, still supporting every sultan and king. And, you know, I mean, imagine America supporting people who call themselves your highness and your majesty. And that's our role in the world. We back the king of Kuwait and the king of Saudi Arabia and the emir of uh, uh, the emirs of the United Arab Emirates and the sultan of Oman and all this stuff. This is crazy. And this is why they hate us. And they're not gone. So, yes, there's still a danger, but it ain't because Islam. It's because America's foreign policy just drives all of this madness. and. You know, I don't know. It's it's a real shame, but but the reality is it doesn't have to be this way. And I'm encouraged by the fact that I know that I've, I've been telling this story for a long, long time. And it, I'm only talking to narrow audiences at a time, I guess. Um, so cumulatively, I don't know exactly what it's all worth. But I know that I get the reaction from people that, man, I did not know that. And now that I do, I see it all different, you know. In fact, a lot of times people do know a lot of this story, but they don't know, maybe not on Yemen, but like overall Middle East policy. They know the story I'm telling. They just don't see the through line until they hear me explain how it all makes sense together, how one cause led to the next effect, led to the next thing and the next thing and whatever. And then they know it's right when they hear it. It doesn't have to be this way. As simple as that. This is what Ron Paul did. Ron Paul said to the people, he goes, look, it doesn't have to be this way. They didn't get you believing in this stuff, did they? Oh, no, you don't have to. You don't have to believe in it at all if you don't want to. That was what he did. That was what he said, essentially. And, you know, look at him. He's a conservative Texas Republican. What does that tell you? He's not a liberal rhino Republican from Connecticut or Massachusetts. He's a conservative Texas Republican. 
the most fiscally conservative man in the house. That was for sure. Um, and of course, a libertarian, but certainly not some kind of liberal wishy-washy type. He was just saying, essentially, look, I looked into it and I know better. It doesn't have to be this way. And that was it. In fact, that should have maybe been the slogan of his campaign. It doesn't have to be this way. And look, Donald Trump said, George Bush is the dumbest, <laughs> worst person ever. <laughs> and the decisions he made were the worst decisions that any American president ever made. Wow. Thanks. Coming from him, that meant everything. That meant everything. Because it meant that Republican voters said, well, do I agree with old me who loved George W. Bush and everything he did? Or do I agree with new me who loves Donald Trump and everything he does and says? I think I like, I want to I wanna stay in love with the new guy, which means I got to forget what I used to believe and believe what he says now. And Donald Trump made it easy because, you know, Ron Paul is a gentle old country doctor, a very nice guy. Donald Trump is not. Donald Trump is ruthless and everybody knows it. If Donald Trump says we don't have to be over there, then we don't. Because if we did have to be over there, Donald Trump be the first one to say, General, bomb the crap out of him, right? Everybody knows that he wouldn't hesitate if it was necessary. So if he says it's not necessary, it must not be necessary. And he's right about that. That's the key to it all, too is all that support for Bush and his wars was completely stupid and wrong. And when Donald Trump said that was completely stupid and wrong, that's what was right. And people said, you know what? Why are we still in Afghanistan? Why should we still have troops in Syria and Iraq and the rest of these places? Enough already. Sorry to coin a phrase there. <laughs> it, but it resonated. And it was, it's the social psychology of the situation. You needed a right-wing tough guy to say that stuff. Just like, do you ever watch the Tucker Carlson show and he interviews this Colonel Douglas McGregor? You ever see him on there? I see Tucker Carlson whenever I'm on break at work because Fox News is on one of the TVs in there. That's about the only time I watch Fox News. Well, when it, from time to time when he's talking about foreign policy, he'll interview this guy, Colonel Douglas McGregor. And McGregor is clearly just the toughest and smartest guy in the room. That's it. If he starts talking, he's holding court. You're listening. And... So when he says, it doesn't have to be this way. Look, this is the guy who, if we ever do fight Russia in a conventional tank battle to protect Poland or something in Eastern Europe, this is the guy that wrote the war plan for how we're going to do it. This is the guy that the U.S. Army turns to. I'm like, okay, well, what do you think we should do, Colonel? Because he's the guy. He's the smartest guy in the room. He's the toughest guy in the room. And he says, we don't have to do this. We don't have to be enemies with Russia. Anybody who says we need to pick a fight with Russia needs their head examined. We do not either. China? China ain't nothing. They can attack Taiwan. They sure as hell ain't going to attack our friends in Japan. And they ain't even considering dreaming about attacking us in a thousand years. Man, we don't have to fight with them. We got no enemies at all. Now, you can hear that from me, a skinny kid from antiwar.com. Or you can hear from Douglas McGregor, the toughest SOB in North America tell you the same thing you know and so yeah you should probably just listen to him he's way better than me he knows way more than me and he's got the character profile to to make it easy to hear it just does not have to be this way at all man it just doesn't just think about the ghost of george washington calling out it's supposed to be a limited republic we're supposed to be at peace always except very temporarily in the case of an extreme emergency 
but this constitution doesn't envision a world empire in a state of permanent warfare, in a state of permanent emergency. How can we be free? How can we have a sound economy? How can we have a bill of rights when we have a constant state of national emergency for generations on end? We can't. You know, it's the idea that you thought when you were a little kid, they're like, oh, I get it. And then it's partly my job to make sure that the next generation, the next generation, that they get to have the Bill of Rights too. Like, well, okay, do you believe that or not? Because it's in question whether it's going to survive or not. It's not, it doesn't, it's not taken for granted. There's not a pact with Jesus that says we're going to make sure that we always have the Bill of Rights. That's up to the people of the country to make sure that we do. You can't have a limited republic with a world empire. And I got to tell you too, and I'm sure you already know this, a lot of people are already feeling this, but as bad as all the economic pain that we're suffering right now, you got to understand, this is the height of the inflationary bubble. Well, I hope it's the height. God, if it gets much higher than this, I don't know what we're going to do. But this is the good times. This is the artificially generated swimming in, uh, you know, uh, tidal waves of inflated paper money, good times. But that's how it works in a world empire. You can't have hard money in a world empire. What if there's a war? You got to print some money. So in this case, it was the COVID war, but same difference. And they printed all this money. Now we're living in the, on the upswing. And I know people listening are mad when they hear me say that because it doesn't feel like the upswing to them right yep. now. But I'm telling you, the crash is coming. This is the bubble, friends. And the crash is coming from, again, I mean, why do we have a central bank? We have a central bank because the war party created it so that they could be the war party back 110 years ago, 105 years ago. That's how this all came about. Man, how are we going to get into a world war if we don't have a central bank? That's a good point. <laughs> we better make one, you know? And that's what this whole thing is about all along, is inflationary money and world empire. And it's just, it's the antithesis of everything a constitutional republic is made to be. It's one hand or the other. You have to choose. You can't have it both ways. That's right. All right. I'm going to let you get out of here. We'll wrap this up. I know we went longer than we planned on. I appreciate your patience and, and, and coming on and speaking with us. But why don't you go and plug whatever you want to plug, and then I'll let you get to whatever you got to do the rest of the day. Well, thank you so much again for having me, man. I really appreciate it a lot for having this opportunity to speak to your people like this. Um, my uh, stuff is this. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org. And I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com. That's the most important project on the internet right there. If you like listening to me blab, you might like hear me interview people. That's all at scotthorton.org. I got 5,600 interviews there uh, going back to 2003 for you. And um, I'm on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. And then I wrote, sorry, I know this is too many things. I wrote these two books, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And then the latest is Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And they're both available now out in audiobook as well. Well, Scott, thank you very much. And you keep doing what you're doing. You're a great uh, voice for anti-war. I mean, that's something that we talk about quite a bit on the show because on the peaceful side of what Jesus was teaching, we try to push this anti-war narrative. And we really appreciate what you're doing on, on that on that front. And keep doing what you're doing. You've got a lot of people listening to you. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate that a lot. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. 
Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about the Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com. Thank you.